0: Good morning, friends. We thank, thank both of you. Good morning. Yeah. Don't despair. I know right now the uh, second service is kind of thin. Part of that is that we have a third service, but basically everybody's flocking to the first service. As soon as daylight savings time, as it ends or begins, trust me, it'll even out and we'll all be okay. But you know what? Who cares? I don't care if there's five people here or 5,000. What we need and what we want right now is for the Lord to be present, to be honored and that he would actually speak to us through his word. You know what, if that happens, hallelujah. So we are in a series on the kingdom of God, and we are in Matthew 19. If you have a Bible, we're in Matthew 19. And I'll give you just a taste, but then we're going to go to a little opening. It's a story of the rich young man, or as Luke says, the rich young ruler. And in it, Jesus says to his disciples, truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Then who can be saved, Jesus? And Jesus looked at them and said, Well, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All things are possible. And so the key word here is rich, rich. My question for you is who's rich? How many guys are old enough to remember Tony Campola? I think he taught at Eastern, Eastern College, and he was kind of the, the big speaker in the 70s and 80s, and he was a great speaker. But I remember one line he used to give that used to really make me furious, and I also thought it was illogical. Tony Campola uh, said, It's a sin It's a sin to own a BMW. Well, it's a sin to own a BMW. Maybe. But what's his basis for that? It's a sin. I want want to say, Tony, you're a great speaker, but it's a sin to own a BMW? I have a friend that has a 10-year-old BMW that cost him $6,000. But you, Mr. Self-Righteous, you're driving around in a $32,000 Chevrolet, and yet you're pointing your finger saying, you're a sinner because you drive a BMW. I also heard him t- talk one time about a Mercedes-Benz, and I said, you know, there are taxis in Israel. And so the question is, you know, the, the problem is, the problem is that Tony is using worldly standards. He's holding up our man-made ruler and saying, if you drive this kind of car, you're in good shape. But if you dr- drive this brand of car, you're a sinner. And, and, and the question it begs is, Who's rich? Who's rich? What does it mean to be rich? You know, most people in the world would say anybody that has a car is rich. Most people would say people that even have bus fare are rich. When we're in rural parts of Rwanda or China or Vietnam, some of the places we've gone, I have parents tell me that they they don't even have meat for their children. Not only meat, but sometimes as a family they eat four to five times a week. And they eat this stuff called cassava. To me, it's just like drywall. It's like if you got drywall and put it in a, a Vitamix in a blender, right? It, it, you know, that's the, the consistency and the nutritional value of what they've eaten. You've, you've seen it. And so this whole idea of, like, we talk about the rich, what I really realized is we're we're the rich, honestly, just honestly, on a worldwide scale. Do we have some slides to maybe help us understand this better? Okay. Fancy graphic. I paid a lot for these. All right. So... Let's say, and who knows what everybody makes, right? It's all secret. Only the IRS knows. But I just wanted to pull some examples. This is on a, a website you can go to, How Rich Am I? Anyway, it says, let's say your family has two adults and two kids, two adults and two kids, and your total family income from all sources is $50,000. A lot of us would say, well, that man, that's not very much money in this time and day and age, right? That's not much money in this time. But if you put that in the computer, Outcomes the percentage where you would be on a worldwide scale, and the answer is you'd be in the top 10% of the world in terms of wealth. That's pretty good, right? Pretty good. That's 50,000 with two adults, two kids. Let's see the next one. Next one would be uh, two adults and two kids, and your total family income is 100,000. And that's a big salary, but maybe you've got two wage earners in your family, right? Two. Um, yeah, and so if you had 100,000, two adults, two kids, that would put you in the top. 3.1% of the world. That's pretty high up, right? Man, who are you that the Lord has blessed you to be in the top 3% of all wealthy people? Let's see another one. Okay, so a lot of you are going, well, hey, quick, I don't, I don't have kids. I'm single. So I tried to pick an example that might work for you. And I read in the newspaper, and we always know everything in the newspaper is true. And they said that the average, a year ago, the average, uh, before COVID, the average salary of somebody graduating from college, um, and, and particularly, they mentioned Virginia Tech, the average salary of a kid coming out of college is 60000 Now, we know that may be skewed with engineering or whatever, but let's just go with the, because the paper said it has to be true. Okay, so you come out of college, you make $60,000. Where does that put you in the world in terms of your wealth, in terms of how rich you are? Survey says top 1%. Wow, that's amazing. Let's see the next slide. Let's say, let's say, man, you're really rich. You know, in my view, anybody that has more than me is rich. But we can't use that scale. That's using a human scale. So let's say that you, uh, you're in a family, maybe you have two people working, and your total family income from all sources is $150,000. dollars you get two adults, two kids. Where does that put you on a worldwide scale? Of all the people God has breathed the breath of life into, where would that put you in terms of your richness or your wealth? Survey says, top 1.2%. So do you get the point when Jesus is talking about those who are rich? You know who he's talking to? He's not talking to those people. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. And maybe you go, quick, I don't care about all those numbers. You can make numbers do whatever they want. So let me just ask you a question. Do you sleep in a bed? Because a lot of our compassion kids don't sleep in beds. Are you able, I'm not saying you do, but are you able to eat three meals a day? Can you do that regularly? Then you're rich. Do you have clean water? I remember in Sudan, we the men were sitting around doing nothing, and we saw the ladies early in the morning with jerry jugs on their head walking five miles each way, five to six miles each way, and we're like, what in the world are they doing? Well, they're going to get clean water. If you have clean water in your house, you are wealthy. If you have, when you get sick, if you have the ability to go to a doctor, a nurse, urgent care, wherever you go, and you can get medicines, if you have a child with an earache, right, ear infection, you can go to the Doctor and get amoxicillin, you are wealthy. Is there another slide or are we done? Okay, but you get the point, right? So, from a worldwide scale, everybody in this room, everybody in this room, certainly those out of high school, those out of college, every one of us would be considered wealthy on a worldwide scale. And so, when Jesus says uh, what we read at the beginning, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle then for a rich person to enter the kingdom, that, that should be worrisome to us if, if we're honest, because we are, we are rich. We are on a worldwide scale. There are people who would love to come to our country just so they can have clean water and food and a roof over their head. So we are the rich. So this is really is for us. And so the background, if you open your Bible, in Matthew 19, I want to give you context. It's always important. So Jesus has been teaching about a lot of things, but look in uh, Matthew 19, 13. It says, Then the children uh, were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So the children were being brought to Jesus. Why? So he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. And what was the response of the disciples? Oh, Lord, thank you for being so kind and gracious. What did the disciples say? Stop bringing these kids. Send them away. And Jesus says, no. He says, why do you... uh, No, no, sorry, here it goes. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on the children and he went away. And so the context here is Jesus is blessing these little kids. He wants these little kids to come. He says, don't hinder them. For to such, these little ones who really haven't done anything for the Lord at all. They just come with childlike faith. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And so to me, it's more than ironic. In the next breath, you see this young man who, if we read all four Gospels, we know he was rich, we know he was young, and according to Luke's Gospel, he was a ruler. Rich, young ruler. And we see... Right after Jesus says this about let the little ones come, he comes up to Jesus and goes, Hey, rabbi, teacher, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? It's like, dude, did you just see? He just received these kids who, who didn't know their left hand from their right hand. They hadn't done anything for the Lord. He just had mercy and compassion on them, and he wants them to come sit at his feet. He wants them to be his kids. What must I do? And what really what this rich young ruler is, this is the practice of religion and staying you know, Christianity is different than other world religions. In most other world religions, it's you do X, Y, and Z, and then the Lord might receive you. Do X, Y, and Z. Don't do A, B, and C. It's, it's transactional. It's like what you do determines whether the Lord will love you and whether the Lord will make you his child. Christianity says no. No, no. It's not that way. It's not transactional. It's not based on what you do. The rich young ruler is wrong when he says, what must I do? What must the rich young ruler do? Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Receive the gift. But let's go back to the text itself. So it's a, he said, um, teacher, what, must, what good deed must I do to inherit or to have eternal life? So not only is he rich, not only is he young, not only is he a ruler, but what do we... What else do we know about this young dude? What do we know about him? He is very, very, very religious. He's religious. He's very religious. He's religious. He's like, he's seeking, like, what must I do? I want to be a good person, right? I want to get right with God, I want to do something good. He's, he's, he's religious. The Lord never called people to be religious. In fact, in his religiosity, he's actually blinded because he thinks his standing with God will be based on some good deed he does or some bad deed he doesn't do, not on the most amazing deed ever done, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so when, Je- when he asked Jesus' teacher, what must I do, what, what good deed must I do to have eternal life, what does Jesus say to him? Look in verse 17. And Jesus said to him, and this is, this is so amazing. He says, why, rich young ruler, why do you ask me what is good? There is only, only one that's good. Why are you asking me what is good? There's only one that is good. And so really in that one phrase, Jesus is teaching us two things. It's amazing. In one little sentence, he's telling us two things. The first one is obvious. There is no one good. There's no one good. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Quake. we got some really godly people in our church. I've talked to you about Archbishop Ben Kwashi and Mama Gloria, and they have 70 orphans in their home, and they're right there on the point of the spear where Boko Haram and radical Islam is killing them. They burned down 56 of their churches, and I'm like, wow, they're real Christians. I want to be like them. But Jesus says to the rich young ruler, no one is good. See, we keep using a human measuring stick, but Jesus said, You're using the wrong standard. He said, no one is good. Only God is good. And so we have to come to that realization. We can never come to faith if we think we're good. We can never come to faith if we think we're the ones bringing something to the table. We don't bring anything to the table but filthy rags. We don't bring anything to the table but our own need, our own desperate need for cleansing, washing, and for a Savior. But hidden in that phrase, why do you ask me what is good? There is no one who is good, only God alone. Jesus is whispering. He's whispering to us. If you have ears to hear, you know the scripture says those who have eyes to see and ears to hear? What is he whispering here? You might have missed it as it happened so quick. Not only is there no one good but God alone, but Jesus, who had just been called good, he's really whispering, I am God. See, the rich young ruler recognizes Jesus is good. Jesus says, no one's good but God alone. Therefore, indirectly, and it's a whisper, he is letting him know that he is, in fact, the Lord God Almighty. God in the flesh. The expressed image of the Father. All right, let's keep going in the text. Jesus throws out a little test to him. Brian, could you give me some water? Because I'd hate to preach short. It says... um, Jesus throws this out. It's like a little test. Everybody loves a test. Pop quiz. If you would enter life, rich young ruler, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. If you want to enter life, keep, thank you so much, keep the commandments. That seems kind of like legalistic, doesn't it? You mean God actually cares about obedience? Oh, you bet he does. Here's what I want to say to you very clearly. Please hear this. Our obedience is a fruit or outpouring um, of the grace of God. It's not something that qualifies us for the grace of God. It is a response, an outpouring of the grace of God. Okay, but we need to be very careful. Let me just throw this fancy theological phrase to you. Antinomian. Antinomian. Say that. Antinomian. Antinomian means that you're against the law. There are people that even famous preachers in our country that say, "Don't don't even bother reading the Old Testament. Friends, that is a mistake. That's the testament Jesus read, right? Every word of God is, is pure, it's lovely, it's holy, it's our very life, it's not burdensome, it's a light, and it's a lamp. And in all 66 books, we see this theme that keeps re- repeating itself. There is no one good, but God does care whether we walk in obedience. He does care. He knows you're not going to walk in perfect obedience, but He still calls you to walk in obedience. Of course he does. He loves you. He's a good father. He doesn't want you to pierce yourself with many griefs, right? Again, we're not talking about earning your way to become a son or daughter. No, that, if you're a disciple, that's already been decided. But he says, I want, you know, as Ephesians 2.10 says, It's by grace you're saved through faith, not works, lest any man should boast, this not of yourself. But he says, "Um, I have good works that I've prepared for you to walk in. Again, it's post-salvation, post-salvation. The Lord receiving and accepting you says, I have good works I want you to walk in. So obedience is important. Anybody that tells you obedience is not important has not read Scripture. Let me just give you three quick ones. Deuteronomy 10 says this. Deuteronomy 10. What does the Lord your God require of you? Oh, I'd like to know that, wouldn't you? John, what does the Lord require of you? Well, you could answer it from Micah. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But in Deuteronomy it says this. What does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in His ways and to love Him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to, drumroll please, and to keep His commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And so clearly, through Moses, God is speaking to Israel. He's speaking to his people and saying, God cares. He wants us to walk in his ways. He wants us to keep his commandments and statutes. Not so he will love us, but because he loves us, he doesn't want us to pierce ourselves with many griefs. He wants us to walk in freedom, and you can't walk in freedom if you don't listen to the word of the Lord and walk in his commandments. He knows we won't do it perfectly, that's why it's provided a Savior. But obedience is still there. How about Proverbs 7? Preachers are long-winded and have many words. Words. God has few words. He says this, Keep my commandments and you will live. Keep my commandments and you'll live. And so here, that's a second passage in the, in the Old Testament. We see the Importance of obedience, the importance of someone who is loved by God and loves God back, of walking in obedience and keeping His commandments. One more. Ecclesiastes twelve. How many of us could find that? You know what I always tell you: if you can't find a book of the Bible, don't be shamed. There's sometimes where I'm like Nehum, Obadiah, Third John it says, you know, where's that book? It's okay to look in the table contents. But the, the main point here is Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen is this. For the end of the matter, when all has been heard, fear God, and fear God and what? Fear God and keep His commandments. So, do you see the pattern there? Just that—that's three. I could have given you twenty, but do you see, in the Old Testament, it's not just in the New Testament, out of the mouth of Jesus. It's in the Old Testament. God cares that we walk in His ways. He cares that we love him. He cares that we keep his commandments. And so now, and when Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, you're going to expect that Jesus is going to throw out the ten commandments, right? That's what you would expect. But Jesus doesn't do that. How many commandments did he throw out? Of the ten, how many did he throw out? Five. He left, he left a bunch off. Why did he do that? Can I just tell you, bottom line up front, the reason he did that is he listed those commandments of the ten that had to do with the horizontal. He listed those commandments with how we treat the people around us. He specifically did not list the commandments with how we honor and love the Lord, whether the Lord is our God. Okay, so you know the ten commandments. Have no other gods before me. Don't have any idols, whether they're kissing cousins. Don't don't, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Um, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, And then honor your father and mother. Yeah, yeah. honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. It's the first commandment with a promise. Thou shalt not murder. Thou thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not uh, steal. Thou shalt not bear false testimony or lie, and thou shalt not covet. But Jesus didn't list all ten. He listed the ones that had to do with the horizontal, not the vertical. The ones that have to do with the way we treat others, not the way we relate to the Lord. And for good measure... Um, Jesus throws in a, another commandment that's not in the Ten Commandments. Did you, did you notice that? What did he throw in at the very end that's not in the Ten Commandments? And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people said that's what Jesus said. Well, yes, he did say that, but Jesus wasn't the first one to say it. It was said um, in Deuteronomy 19. And so Jesus is serving up on a platter to the rich young ruler um, all five of the Ten Commandments have to deal with love for neighbor, not the ones that deal with his relationship with God. And he adds for good measure, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's look in verse 20. If you have your Bible, if you have your smartphone. Now, once Jesus throws out these commandments, you know what I probably would have done if I'm not deceived? If the Lord said, hey, keep the commandments. You know the commandments. Keep these Before the holy presence of the Lord, I think I would just have to fall on my face, honestly, in embarrassment, because I don't keep them very well. But you know what the rich young ruler did? He stood up and recited for Jesus. He goes, All these I've kept. All these I've kept. Could you imagine telling the Lord, all these I've kept? Jesus is like, Really? Man, you're amazing. All these I've kept. Did you not hear the part where I said, no one is good but God alone? And so, like, it's ridiculous. Even if you were to just use those commandments, the horizontal ones, when it says, thou shalt not murder, oh, rich young ruler. So maybe you never literally killed somebody. But have you ever looked on somebody with anger in your heart? According to Jesus, that's murder. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty. I'm a murderer because I've looked on people with anger in my heart or even hatred sometimes in my heart. I hate to say it. I'm a murderer. I need a savior. Or let's look at another one. He says, thou shall not commit adultery. Well, I haven't committed adultery, but Jesus widens that. He defines, he says what it really means. It's not simply a physical act. He said, it's here as well. If you even look on uh, someone someone else with lust in your heart, that, that, that d- sexual uh, desire for that person if you lust in your mind, he goes, guess what? You're an adulterer. And so for the rich young ruler to say, all these I've kept, he's deceived. He's absolutely deceived. Now, to be fair to him, St. Paul, the great St. Paul, I think it's in Philippians 3, was talking about his heritage, how he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and, you know, he's a great Jew and all this. And he says, as to the law, blameless. So even Paul, at some point, could say, all these rules, all the, all the laws that you've given through Moses, I've kept them all. Really? This is the man who thinks he kept all of God's law, yet when God knocked him down, what did he say? He didn't even know the Lord he thought he was serving. He says, who are you, Lord? There's a deception to think that we're keeping God's laws. But after the Lord lays out the horizontal commandments, which the rich young ruler claimed he had kept since his youth, which, of course, he's deceived. He had not, really. Um, what does Jesus do? Jesus, Jesus loves the rich young ruler. That's what I want to say. In spite of his pride, in spite of the deception he has going on in his head, Jesus loves him. And because Jesus loves him, Jesus is saying, Look, um, I'm going to need you to do something. And I've never asked anyone else in the Bible to do this. You'll never find it anywhere else. He goes, I want you to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The reason Jesus asked that is he knew that this rich young ruler had his arms wrapped around another god. He had his heart invested in another god, and he knew he would never be free to dance with the Lord. He'd never be free to worship him. He'd never be free to be a son of the Lord if he still had his arms and his heart clutched around this other god. And in his case, the other god was his wealth, his money. And so Jesus says, one thing you lacked. if you would be perfect, go sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. And the rich young ruler, he thought about it, and the the scripture records it as he thinks about it, it's going on in his head and his spirit. It says his face fell as he counted the cost of wanting to give up his idol, give up his security to worship the Lord. It says he walked away sorrowful. He walked away sorrowful. And so we see the same question the disciples had. We need to end here. The disciples said, well, gosh, Lord, by human standards, like, even we are pretty wealthy. I mean, we have water and we have food and we have a place to sleep. Like, we're wealthy. So if the rich, Jesus said, it's harder for what? A camel to go through an eye of a needle. It's it's a hyperbole. It's easier for a camel to go through the little eye of a needle than for a rich person to go into heaven. Why is that? That's because so often people like us who have all these comforts, all these uh, basic things in our life, a lot of times it breeds what? Oh, I happen to have notes. False independence. That Hey, we're doing good, God. Bless you. See you in heaven. We're doing good. False independence. Riches may shackle a man to this earth. Where your treasure is, said Jesus, there will your heart be. Riches tend to make a man selfish. And so we know that rich people can inherit the kingdom. Do you know a rich person in Scripture that inherited the kingdom? How about Nicodemus? How about Joseph of Arimathea? You've read the story. How about Zacchaeus? But what Jesus is saying, he's using hyperbole. Can you imagine the camel through the eye of the needle? I don't know about you guys. You probably have better vision than I do. You're all blurred here. But can you imagine trying to like stick a rope through the eye of a needle, which you can't even see? It's like... Jesus said, It's so hard for those who trust in their wealth. It's so hard for us who trust in our wealth and our cunning and our ability to get in the kingdom of heaven because we don't want to give up our God. We don't want to give up the things that give us security to come and fall at the knees of the Savior. And so when the, the apostles say, Gosh, it seems impossible to get in the kingdom, who can get in the kingdom? Jesus says, You know what? With man, it's impossible. With, If it's left up to us, it's impossible. You'll never enter the kingdom. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. It's not all on us. And he, and he said, what's impossible with man is possible with God because God loves people. He says, I came not to condemn but to save. I came not to condemn but to save. This morning I would ask myself this question. I'll ask you this question. Are you trusting? Do you have your arms wrapped around a different God? Do you have your heart set on a different God? Are you worshiping a different God? If so, God in his kindness calls you to leave that God, count the cost, and walk away, not sorrowful like the rich young ruler, but walk away with Christ as your provider. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen.